perfect. The translation is really good in the NIV. Ephesians 3.13, Paul writing, he says, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is the word of God for us today. Let's pray. All of our lives, you've been faithful. Through every high and low, you've been steadfast. When a lot of other things in life have not been, you have been. Thank you for your nearness that is our good. Thank you for your word that is like bread and water to our souls. We ask that you would nourish us today on the truth of your word. You know every single one of us, God, you know the places we feel super strong, the places we feel utterly weak. You know, hidden things that we don't even fully comprehend ourselves. And you are able to, in the same, in the same moment, speak to each one of us personally and specifically. And so we ask that you would do that. Jesus, this is your church. If you don't speak to us and you don't move in our lives, then all of this is for naught. It's all for vain, all in vain. So we ask that you would do what only you can do by the power of your spirit, that you would move in and through every word, every thought. I submit my mouth and my thoughts and my notes to you and ask that you would speak to us, your people, for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. The title of this sermon is Popsicles and Presents. And uh, here's why. If you were here last week, you remember me telling this story about our six-year-old Kingston and how often when Kingston is hungry for a snack, he will come to me kind of like uh, with lacking a lot of confidence and have, you know, with his head down and kind of like this. And, and he'll say like, Dad, I just, I really, um, I kind of just want something sweet. <laughs> and, but like kind of icy and cold and a little bit fruity maybe with like some colors in it. <laughs> and he's really like shy and not confident, right? Because he's not, he's not confident that I'm actually going to respond. What he's asking for is a popsicle. And I shared last week about how he does this often. It's like at least a couple of times a week. And then I shared about how, how often um, I have come to God uh, very similarly, asking for what I think is good stuff. You know, it seems like I'm justified in asking. It seems like this would be a good thing for God to do. But it turns out in the end that maybe it's, it's only as valid or as justified as my six-year-old asking for a popsicle instead of dinner. And uh, it seems that I am often asking for the popsicle of deliverance from suffering, if you will, when maybe what God is wanting to give me is his presence. And we just spent a few minutes last week talking about about suffering, because it, it wasn't really in that verse, but it is in our verse today. Hence, the title of this sermon, Popsicles and Presence. And so we're really going to be looking at this popsicles of deliverance from suffering, um, so to speak, in, 
and the idea that often we do that instead of looking at the promise of God's presence in our lives. Hence the, the title, Popsicles and Presence. And there's three things I want to look at. Number one, our suffering as a precondition of our glory. Number two, our suffering as a precondition of others' glory. And then finally, popsicles and presents. We'll read our verse again here, Ephesians 3.13 from the NIV. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. If you remember from the introduction to the book of Ephesians, Paul spent a couple of years in Ephesus around uh, AD 54 where he was preaching the gospel, right? This is like a Gentile place far away from Israel, far away from Jerusalem. He's preaching the gospel of Jesus. He's ministering to people. And as he is, many people are becoming followers of Jesus. And so there around AD 54, AD 55, uh, the church in Ephesus, the Christian church, is birthed. And then a couple years later, AD 55, he leaves. This is what Paul did. He'd go somewhere for a few years, preach the gospel. A church would be started, and then he would leave. And so that, from there, he leaves, and he travels to Greece and to Macedonia and to Jerusalem until he finally gets to Rome, where he is imprisoned for about three years from AD 60 to AD 62. And it is from this Roman prison where he writes this letter to the Ephesian church, so when he speaks of sufferings here in this verse, um, he's most likely talking about his imprisonment and probably being beat. He's probably being beat by these people for preaching the gospel, being uh, persecuted by the Roman authorities. Jesus was a threat to the Roman authorities when he walked the earth because they were like, is this dude a king? If he's a king, then he's going to overthrow our rule. And so they were threatened by him. And then he died, and they were like, oh, this Jesus isn't a threat anymore. But then he rose from the dead, and they were like, uh-oh, if, if death can't stop this guy... Then who could stop him? Nobody. That's right, Jody Melia. Nobody. <laughs> and then he ascends to heaven, though. He's gone again. Except his followers are now doing the same stuff he was doing in the same way he was doing it with the same power and authority he was doing it in his name. And so if you were a Christ follower doing all the same stuff Jesus was doing, you were a threat to the Roman Empire. And if you were a leader like Paul, then even more so. And so he was often arrested, often beat, until he was finally killed, beheaded for his faith in AD 67 by the Roman government. So when Paul speaks about sufferings, this is no joke, right? He knows what sufferings mean. He really was suffering. And in the previous 12 verses leading up to this one, um, he expounds on this, this mystery, he calls it, that has now been revealed in Christ Jesus, that God isn't out to just save the children of Israel, that his plan was for the entire world, those, anybody who would trust in Jesus. And so now he's writing to a non-Jewish audience, a Gentile audience here, and he is rejoicing with them that they too have been brought into the kingdom family of God through faith in Jesus, that they too are now partakers of the promises of God. And like we saw last week, that they too have been given confident and bold access to come into God's presence, something that nobody had ever had except for Adam and Eve before the fall and Jesus when he walked the earth. And that, the declaration of that mystery is the basis for which he writes our verse today, verse 13, I'm gonna read it again. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are 
your glory. We're going to come back to the beginning of this verse in just a few minutes, but I want to go to the end of the verse first. He says, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my sufferings, which are your glory. Don't be discouraged because of my sufferings for you. My sufferings are your glory. My sufferings are your glory. His suffering, like I said, is referring to the simple fact that he was, he was being persecuted for preaching the gospel. Because people in places like Ephesus were turning from pagan gods and they were turning to Jesus. And so the Roman government was persecuting people like Paul. That's the suffering that he's speaking of. And I think it's noteworthy that the, the word that he uses here to describe his sufferings, um, it's his Greek word, I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's used to describe a narrow place that hems someone in or a tribulation, especially internal pressure that causes someone to feel confined, restricted, without options. It's speaking of this inner turmoil, right? This like almost like claustrophobic on the inside. You ever felt like that? Some of us know that feeling all too well. Right, we feel, we feel trapped, restriction, like restricted without options. And Paul quite literally was restricted without options, not just internally, but externally as he was literally writing from a prison where he was confined and couldn't get out. And Paul makes this connection here between suffering and glory. Between suffering and glory, which is the first thing I want to look at specifically, number one, our suffering as a precondition of our glory. We know that there is a glory coming. Somebody say amen. amen. The Bible teaches that the fact that Christ rose from the dead and we too will be risen with him and glorified is this like eternal hope we have. We have a hope of glory. Christ in us, the hope of glory. But in Paul's mind, glory cannot be disconnected from suffering. Suffering and glory are interconnected. And the former is actually a precondition of the latter. Suffering is a precondition, in Paul's mind, of glory. And this was a theme that he often wrote about. And I think it was probably on the forefront of his mind. How could it not be, right? This was a, a daily reality for him. His suffering was a daily reality for him. He writes about it in 2 Corinthians 4 when he says... Look at this, for our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Like there's some suffering going on, right? It's happening right now. Yet they produce, the sufferings produce. The sufferings are like the workers in the field doing the work. The sufferings are like the seed producing something. The sufferings produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. Our present sufferings, are doing the work in us that brings about this eternal glory, Paul is saying there. And then he writes in Romans 8, and since we are his children, we are his heirs. We are heirs of God. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share in his glory, we must also share in his suffering. Yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. Present suffering, eternal glory, intertwined. And just in case we don't believe the Apostle Paul, we see this in the life of Jesus. 
His suffering preceded his glory. He spoke about it before he went to the cross in Luke 9, and he said, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed. Jesus is describing his suffering. And then, right, three days later, on the third day, after the suffering, on the third day, he will be raised to life. The suffering of Christ preceded the glory of Christ. And this is the pattern that Paul often spoke of, which means that when we find ourselves suffering before we find ourselves in the glory, we ought not to count it a strange thing. And I'm encouraged, and you should be encouraged, that we have a friend in Jesus who has gone before us in this path. Our suffering is a precondition of our glory. But the second thing I want to look at is our suffering as a precondition of others' glory. And this is kind of a trippy one. It's not something we really think about that often, but what Paul is saying here is that not only is his suffering the precondition of the person's glory who is suffering, but it is sometimes also a precondition of other people's glory that may not even be suffering. Because... Because people in places like Ephesus were being saved, the Roman government was out to get people like Paul. They were persecuting him. He was suffering. But Paul doesn't say that he was suffering only. He says, I am suffering for you. I am suffering for you, literally on your behalf. I am suffering on your behalf. In other words, don't be discouraged, church. Don't be discouraged at my sufferings, which I am taking on on your behalf. In the case of the apostolic call on Paul's life, it wasn't just the suffering of the church that was the precondition of the church's glory, although that is true. It was the suffering of the apostle that was the precondition of the glory of the church. Look at the verse again. I ask you, therefore, do not be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. Paul's sufferings were a precondition of the glory of the church in Ephesus. And I think this is honestly just part of the apostolic call. That call of breaking open new ground in somewhere that hadn't been broken. Breaking down walls that have not yet been illuminated with the gospel of Jesus. This is part of the cost of that apostolic call. Often when we think about apostolic calls, we think about the like, oh, they're pioneering something new. We're pioneering something new. Something's breaking open. Something new isn't starting. There's new ground being forged. There's new opportunities But this also is part of it. Some of you here today, you believe that you have this type of calling. Not that you're like one of the 12 apostles, but that you have an apostolic type calling where you will forge new ground. Where you'll go places and do things and break open things in the spiritual realm that have not been broken open yet. As a church, we're committed to reaching the unreached. That means we're, we're sending global partners places where the gospel has never gone. There's never been gospel there. So that means that some people are going to have this type of apostolic call in their lives where they're going out, they're forging new ground, they're going into places that have never been. They're like digging in a shovel that's never been dug in in the spiritual realm in that places. And so some of those people are going to have that kind of apostolic call in their lives as they go out to a new frontier. But I think that part of that call is what Paul is speaking of here. The call of the apostles in the first century was not only to forge new ground and pioneer something new, but also that as they did it, for them to suffer and break open the wall so that the people behind them could experience the glory. 
Paul writes about it over in 2 Corinthians 1 when he says, but if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. His suffering as a precondition to their glory. 2 Corinthians 4, he says, so death works in us, but life in you. We're, we're dying so that you can live. What? His suffering is a precondition of their glory. And then in Colossians 1, I am glad when I suffer for you in my body. I am glad when I suffer for you in my body, for I am participating in the sufferings of Christ that continue for his body, the church. The call on Paul's life was for the sake of the Gentiles. We see that. And his suffering was also for the sake of the Gentiles. And what we learn from Paul's example is that as true as it is that our suffering is producing glory in us and that God is going to use all that suffering to work good in us, it is also true that our suffering is not always only about us and for us. Sometimes our suffering may actually be at least in part on behalf of or because of something bigger that God is doing. And I would say, friend, and this just might be to a few of us, that especially if you are involved in bringing the gospel somewhere that it has not gone yet, or even in bringing a biblical life-changing truth somewhere that it has not gone yet, that you will probably experience suffering as the, one, the first one through the gate. When there is new ground being taken in the spiritual realm, those on the front lines are often going to experience the brunt of it. We get this in, we see this in war, like ground war, right? Those who go out first are going to experience the brunt of the attack. But it is so that the people coming after can like freely come in. It is for the glory of those who will follow. So Paul was suffering, but it was for the glory of the Gentiles who were being saved. And so he tells the church, don't be discouraged. Don't be discouraged that my sufferings there are your glory. I'm taking on the brunt of the opposition here. I'm being persecuted. I'm in prison. I'm probably going to die. But my opposition is for your glory. And the word glory here, it means to have intrinsic value or to have magnificence, right? It's like, it's magnificent. It's glorious. He's saying, I'm suffering on your behalf and it's, it's going to make you shine. I'm going through first so that you can be magnificent. And that alone is reason enough for us to not be discouraged, that there is this future glory coming. So when Paul says, don't be discouraged at my sufferings, it's like, yeah, I got future glory. Okay, I got future glory. Okay, I won't, I, I won't be discouraged in the midst of suffering. But I think that there is more there is actually another reason why the church ought not to be discouraged. I don't think that it's only about our future glory. I think that it's also about our present reality. And here's why I think that. Because Paul connects this verse about suffering with the previous verse when he opens this sentence with the word, therefore. So the third thing that I want to look at, finally, is popsicles and presence, popsicles and presence. Let me start off by saying this. The future assurance and the present reality of us in God's presence 
are more powerful than both the discouragement that comes from suffering and the suffering itself. That was a compact sentence, so I'm just going to read it again. The future assurance and the present reality of us in God's presence are more powerful than both the discouragement that comes from suffering and the suffering itself. The intricacy found in these couple of verses is not only about the connection between suffering and future glory. That is part of it, for sure, and we can't miss that. But I believe that it is also about, our pre- about the present reality of glory. Not just the future reality of glory, the present reality of glory. The glory that is the presence of God in our lives today in the midst of suffering. Because Paul begins verse 13 using this conjunction. Therefore, he says, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged. Is anybody hot in here right now? Okay. Can somebody... Please, who knows how to do things, make sure the, not just the fans are on, but like the cool is on. So we usually have it at 70. Please, God, thank you. <laughs> My goodness. He starts this sentence saying, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged. Oh, I can feel the air already. So listen, anytime you see a therefore in the Bible you got to ask yourself, what's the therefore? Therefore. Anytime there is a therefore, it is always therefore a reason. In order to find out what the therefore is therefore, you got to look to what preceded the therefore. Right? So in verse 13, when he starts it off and he says, therefore, do not be discouraged, you got to look to what happened before verse 13. Specifically, what happened in verse 12. So when Paul is saying in verse 13, hey, I'm suffering I'm in prison. I'm getting beat. I might die. This is gnarly. There's a lot to be discouraged about here. But don't be discouraged at my sufferings. Therefore, don't be discouraged at my sufferings. In order to understand why, we got to look to the previous verse. Because it's like, how, Paul? How am I not supposed to be discouraged, man? Why would I not be discouraged? The answer is in the previous verse. It has to be because the verse starts with the word, therefore. The basis Listen, the basis for which the church should not be discouraged or faint-hearted at Paul's sufferings hinges on the truth that preceded this encouragement for them to not be discouraged. Listen, this is true for us. The basis for which we, Church Reality Ventura, should not be discouraged in the face of sufferings hinges on what Paul just said in the previous verse. Listen, Paul is in prison, man. He's probably on his way to die. Nobody knows. And it is because of his preaching and people being saved. If you were a Christian in the first century Roman Empire, you were an enemy of the state. But if you were a Christian missionary church planner evangelist, you might as well have been a terrorist to the Roman government. And they did not have mercy on their enemies. And for the church in Ephesus, man, this was their guy. Paul was their guy. They didn't know Jesus personally. They're in Ephesus. They're in this way, metropolis city way far away from Jerusalem or anywhere Jesus ministered. They didn't see Jesus. They knew Jesus through Paul. He was their guy. He had taught them everything they knew about Jesus. He had taught them, he had preached the gospel to them. He had tra- helped transfer them from darkness into light. He's their dude. He's one of their pastors. He started their church. And now he's suffering. Now he's in prison. Of course they're going to be on the verge of discouragement. 
Of course, they're going to be on the verge of losing heart. The natural response for every single human being is to be full of discouragement and losing heart when we are faced with difficulty, certainly when the, the, the circumstances are uncertain and the, how they will play out is uncertain. And certainly when it seems like, dude, this is an insurmountable obstacle for me to overcome. I don't know about you, but I've, I've been there, right? I've been there where it's just like, I, it, feels like it feels like a full-time job to just get up. Feels like a full-time job to just like live, to just do normal life. In fact, that's what that word discouragement means there. It means to like be full of weariness. Like that feeling of just, I just, I don't know if I can go on, man. I don't know if I can go on. And in other places in scripture, we can grab other tools to help us through suffering and to encourage us to not grow weary and lose heart. But here, Paul hinges his entire exhortation of verse 13 on one specific thing. There is something so good about what preceded verse 13 that it can make the improbability of verse 13 a reality. Something so powerful about the previous statement that it can make the impossibility of do not be discouraged a possibility. And what would be so invigorating that it would remove the obstacle and impossibility of verse 13? Like I said, the answer is in the previous verse, which is really a culmination of the previous 11 verses. He says in the previous verse, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. We can now come confidently and boldly into God's presence. Therefore, do not be discouraged at my sufferings. The Gentiles, along with every believing Jew, have now been given bold and confident access into God's holy presence. What is so powerful so invigorating that it can remove the impossibility of do not be discouraged when everything is discouraging in the midst of suffering. We can now come into God's presence. It's the presence of God. That is what is so invigorating. That is what the therefore is there for. It is the presence of God. You have been given access into the presence of God. Therefore, do not be discouraged. This is not just about future glory. This is not just about future glory in heaven in the presence of God. This is about the on earth reality of the presence of God in our lives. The whole thing here is about the presence of God here. This is what humanity was designed for and what Adam and Eve had in the garden before they sinned and what Jesus came to redeem us back to. And this is what Paul is tripping out on before he gets to this verse. He's tripping out that we now have bold and confident access into the presence of God. Like there's a, there's a far off, like I don't, know if, I don't know if I can go there. He's too big. He's too strong. He's the God of the whole earth. He's the king of heaven and earth. I don't deserve to be in his presence. And God opens up the door and says, hey, you, come here. Paul is tripping out. Paul is tripping out on this. And that 
That is the grounds on which Paul encourages the church to not be discouraged in the midst of sufferings. That's why Paul can say that. Because this is kind of a big ask, right? Like if somebody was like, hey, dude, don't be discouraged. Like, honestly, I'd get kind of mad. Like, don't, don't, don't say that to me. Don't tell me to not be discouraged. This is discouraging, man. I'm in the middle of pain. This is I'm suffering. This is hard. Paul, look, you're dying. Somebody's going to kill you. Don't tell me to not be sad about it. That's kind of a big ask. You better have a dang good reason to ask something like that. And he does. People who were far off, who couldn't even come close to God, have now been given bold and confident access into the presence of God. And Paul is like, dude, this is unreal. This is crazy. Our lives have been changed forever. Jews and Gentiles, kingdom, family together now, intimate access into the presence of God. And this is not timid, like, I don't know if I can be in your presence kind of access to God. This is bold and confident access. And guys, listen, because I know some of us don't get it yet. That's all right. Paul was on to something that we need to learn from. Paul was on to something here that we need to learn from. You remember how I told you about Kingston with his, his popsicle, right? And he thinks the best thing for him is a popsicle. At, he doesn't say popsicle. He says something sweet and icy and I don't know, like maybe just fruity and colorful. But what he, oh, Kingston thinks a popsicle is what's best for him when he's hungry. But it's not really the best thing for him. What Paul knew that we could learn from is that the promise of God's presence is better than the popsicle of deliverance. He's like, yeah, people hate me. I'm probably going to die. I'm probably going to be killed. I'm probably going to suffer some more. But I ain't tripping, dude. We get to go into God's presence every day. Like we get to live into God's presence. You kidding me? This is crazy. We get to live in God's presence. Church, the good news is not just that we are no longer outsiders. It's that the door has been opened We have been brought inside. Then we have been escorted to the dining room. Then we have been brought to the table of the father. And then we're like sat on his lap. Like we're like with him. That is the good news. This isn't just my sins are forgiven and now I'm filled with God's Holy Spirit. This is my sins are forgiven and now I'm filled with the Spirit for the purpose of me being granted access into the presence of God. And now I can live in the presence of God. It's like a change of identity. It's a change of residence. It's like you're not an orphan. You don't have to live out there anymore. You live in here. Somebody say, somebody say, our residence is God's presence. Come on, say it again. Our residence is God's presence. How, Paul? How? How and why? How am I not supposed to be discouraged? And why would I not be discouraged when everything is discouraging? And I believe he would say, because the nearness of God is better than the relief of pain. The truth is God never promised to deliver us from suffering. What he promised was his presence. It was always a promise of presence. In the world, you're going to have some trouble, Jesus said. Somebody say trouble. 
Expect it. Expect it. Don't be surprised when it comes. Now somebody say presence. Listen, I'm not going to tell you that now that you're a child of God, all your troubles are going to go away. I've been walking with Jesus too long, read my Bible too many times to tell you that. I can't give you that news. But I can give you the good news that the presence of God will be with you in every single season of life. I can't give you the good news that it's going to be easy because it's not. It's not going to be easy, but I can give you the good news that in the midst of it, we can now come boldly and confidently into God's presence. Jesus said there's going to be trouble. And Jesus said, my presence is going to be with you, though. And sometimes God does deliver us in a way that, that means we don't have to suffer anymore. Praise God. Thank you, Lord, for when you bring those times of relief. But sometimes God chooses to not deliver us or not deliver us yet, but rather to just show up in the midst of it. And sometimes, like I said, God is going to deliver us. He's just not doing it yet. It's coming. He's just not doing it yet. But what do we do while we're waiting? What do we do while we're waiting? King David wrote about it. The worship leader, this is his song he wrote. He said, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, David is in something right here. He's walking through, we got that verse up there? No. Psalm 23. There it is. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. David is walking through something. David is in the middle of something. That sounds scary as heck to me. The valley of the shadow of death? Hey kids, we're going camping this weekend. Where at, dad? The valley of the shadow of death. That sounds terrifying. He says, but I will fear no evil. Yo, David, how are you not afraid, bro? You're in the valley of the shadow of death? That sounds terrifying. What is the basis for which you cannot be afraid, David? Because you are with me. David knew, I'm here, man. I'm going to be here. I'm probably going to be here a while. He knew he wouldn't be there forever because he's walking and he's walking through it. He knew deliverance is going to come someday. I'm walking through. I'm not just like meandering around in it. I'm walking through it. He knew he was going through it. But while he was in it, what was his resolve? What could, what could bring resolve to him? He said, yeah, I'm going to be here for a little bit, but I'm not going to fear evil because my good shepherd is with me. The thing that would get him through was this promise of Emmanuel. God is with us, right? That's what they call Jesus. He is Emmanuel. It means God has come down and he is with us. That is the promise. It was always a promise of presence. Listen, you may be in the valley and you may not know how long you're going to be there, but you don't have to walk alone. That's the power of this. You might walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You might feel like you're in it right now. You're walking. You're like, I don't know when this thing ends. You know, when you're looking and you're like, look how far that thing is. And you're like, I think it's in 10 minutes. And then it ends up being in 10 hours, right? You're like, you don't know how far it is. But while you're in it, you do not have to be alone. The good shepherd 
is with you, right? This is, this is the Lord is my shepherd. That's what this passage is. This is the shepherd guiding the sheep through. And you know what's crazy is when God brings us into green pastures, we're, we're often like, yo, Lord, I'm over here in the valley of shadow of death. It's scary. It's hard. It's exhausting. I want to be full of discouragement. When are the green pastures coming? When are the green pastures coming? But you know what's crazy is often we're like, God just sent me to the green pastures. And when we get there, we're like, I don't really care if you're here or not. I just want the green pastures. But God's like, I'm leading you. I'm actually the best part of the green pastures because I'm here. Because when the wolves come, when you're in the green pastures, those green pastures aren't going to do anything for you. The good shepherd is here. The good shepherd is with you. That is the glory of this. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 that our heavenly father sees when a sparrow falls from the sky. My question is, why the heck did a sparrow fall from the sky? It's a bird, man. Why did it fall? Jesus doesn't answer like the super obvious looming question in the air. Why the heck did the sparrow fall, Lord? Sometimes things just happen that just aren't right. You're like, this is just wrong. And I don't know why sparrows fall when they were meant to fly. And I don't know why God allows pain in our lives. And I don't know why the Apostle Paul was suffering and beaten in a prison. But I do know that asking why won't heal your broken heart. And it won't lift you from the pit of discouragement. Only the presence of God can do that. We were never promised a reason and we were never promised deliverance from the pain on earth, but we were promised his presence. When Joshua was faced with the biggest fight of his life right before they went into Canaan, there's giants in the land. He's scared, no doubt on the verge of full discouragement, but you know what God did not say to him? It's all right, dude, I'm gonna remove the fight from you. And I'm going to remove you from the fight. God didn't say that. You know what God said? He said, have I not commanded you? I picture like if God was like just holding him on the shoulders, looking in his face. Have I not commanded you, son? Look at me. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Look at, do not be discouraged. Lord, how am I not supposed to be discouraged? Why would I not be discouraged? Because the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. It was a promise of presence, and that's the best news I can give you. That's the best news I can give you, which is why we often say as a church, the presence of God really is the best thing we got going for us. Listen, we're not going to do things the way that you like it, and I'm not going to preach the way you want me to, and the worship's not going to sound the way you want it to. Listen, none of that even matters. If you don't come here and experience the presence of God, like go to the stinking movies, go to the beach. Why are you here? What you come in and experience when you've walked into this place and you've been like, dude, I've never felt anything like this. It must be the lights or so-and-so preaching. No, nobody ever says it's the preaching, but maybe it's the worship or maybe it's the sound. No, it's not. It's actually the presence of God. You just don't know what to call it. It's actually just the presence of God. It's the best thing we got going for us. And I said it last week, but I have asked God for so many things that are just like tasty good popsicles, I guess. And God has said no to so many things in my life that I thought were a really good idea. And even like just. He has said no many times. 
But the one thing he has never said no to is when I have asked, Lord, can I be with you? Can I be with you? And this is powerful, life-changing truth. And I believe that it's the reason why Paul could tell the church, do not be discouraged in the face of suffering. Because the presence of God is better than the promise of the relief of suffering. But listen, I'll end with this. It is only as powerful as how much we appropriate it to our lives. This truth is only as powerful as how much we appropriate it to our lives. You can hear it right now, and you're like, you, you, you're going to suffer. If you're not suffering right now, you're going to suffer eventually. You might be in it right now, and you can hear the truth of, man, the presence of God, though, that can bring some, some still and some resolve and some relief in my life, and it can go one ear out the other. If you don't let it go into your head and then down into your heart, if you don't appropriate it, then this means nothing. And did you notice that Paul did not say, church, I'm praying to God that God will make you not discouraged. He said, you, don't be discouraged. He puts the, the emphasis on them. He says, this is truth. I just spoke about it. In light of this, you do not be discouraged. That means we got to resolve to walk in this. We got to resolve to walk in it. What does that mean practically? I believe that that means that we set our lives up to invite still times where we sit in the presence of God. We design our lives to stop long enough to be still, which allows God time and space in our lives. It's as simple as that. This is powerful truth, but only if we make space for it in our lives. When the children of Israel were going in and Joshua was like, we're going to do this. I'm scared, God, but we're going to do it. Almost the entire nation who had come out of Egypt, that whole generation was like, God, you said you're going to be with us, but I'm not so sure. And God said, I'm going with you. I'm going to go with you. You don't have to be afraid. They said, I don't know those giants in the land. And they gave in to their fear and doubt. They gave in to their discouragement instead of giving in to faith. And do you know what happened as a result? God said, this entire generation who came out of Egypt, you're not going to get to see the promised land. They missed out on the promise of God because the presence of God wasn't enough for them. What they wanted was more deliverance, but what God wanted to give them was his presence what they wanted was popsicles. When God said, I'm giving you the promise of my presence. So Christian, today, let's resolve to partake and make space for the presence of God in our lives. It really is true that just a moment in God's presence can literally transform somebody's life. Can literally just like bring relief to the pain of discouragement. And I believe that if we will make time today right now, to create rhythms of sitting still in God's presence that then we will be able to face whatever comes tomorrow. Amen? Your word says that your presence is better than life, Lord. Your presence is better than Life and everything in life. We are so often looking and waiting for the release, the relief, the green pasture, the streams of water. But Lord, we don't want to miss the best part about the streams 
which is that you're there bringing us to the streams. We don't want to miss that you actually are the stream of living water. Jesus, we don't want to miss that you are the bread of life. We ask that you would help us, Lord. I, I know that sometimes we, we get so like heightened and so like stressed and so full of anxiety. There's too much going on. I can't. It's just too much, too much pressure. That it takes like, it can take days sometimes to just like decompress long enough to, to be present. But we ask that right now, in these next 20 minutes or so during this second set, that you would give us grace to do that. I want to say this church as we enter into this second set of worship the second set was designed for this for this thing right here to sit in the presence of God and I would encourage you to do this sometimes we're like I don't know how to hear God or like I don't know how to listen I don't you don't have to do any of that you can come to God today as if he was a great physician you know when you put yourself on a physician's table you don't have to figure anything out because they're the ones who know everything. And you're like, I don't really know what the problem is. I know my symptoms. I know I'm not feeling great. I don't know why. But I'm gonna lay myself on your table, physician. And I'm gonna let you open me up. And I'm gonna let you look inside and I'm gonna let you determine what needs to be done. And I trust you. I'm putting myself in a place of receiving, in a place of vulnerability. You're the great physician. And so you can come to him right now during this second set and you can say, here I am, Lord. Here I am. Here I am. Do your work, great physician. In fact, if you want to put yourself in that posture, just put out your hands as if you were receiving something from, from God Almighty. And allow your heart to align with stillness, right? Like, let your heart come into stillness and say, Lord, I want to receive from you. I want to sit in your presence. There is no place better to find everything that we need in your presence today. I believe that sometimes God choose to also just pour out his spirit in such a powerful way when we see his presence. That healing that you've been waiting for for a lifetime can come. Give him the space to do that today. The prayer team is on the right and the left. They'd love to help you kind of get there. The carpets are here for you to change your physical posture. Often, man, listen, when you change your physical posture, often your heart will follow. I encourage you to do that. The communion is up here to remember that Christ given his life so that we could come into the presence of God where it is better and release ourselves.